0: The uh, the great contemporary writer Marilyn Robinson said in an interview recently with uh, President Obama, she said, "Contemporary America is full of fear, and fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Fear is a terrible apologetic. And if there's one thing I want to impress to you over these uh, few days we have together, is that you don't need to be afraid." You don't need to be afraid of questions. You don't need to be afraid of uncertainty. You don't need to be afraid of seeking truth wherever it can be found. And you don't need to be afraid of challenges wherever they come from. If glorification is your destiny, you don't have to be afraid anymore. And I'm stressing this because fear was such a big part of my life in college, I didn't even, I didn't even see it. It would like, be like asking a fish about the water. It was just such a big part of my life was fear. And tonight I want to talk to you about what I hope after tonight will be your new best friend and what will deliver you from fear like nothing else. Our, our theme of this week is glorification, and I've been focusing on the root of that word, glory, I've said, even though you might not be concerned about glorification, you were very much concerned with a the theme of glory, that we all hunger for glory, or to put it in terms more familiar, we all want our lives to flourish. What will make your life flourish? Well, here is God's unexpected path to glory. God's unexpected path to glory. We're going to see it in this text from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm just going to read verses 25 through 30. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears his voice, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase. So tonight we're going to talk about humility. How does one speak about humility? If you think you're qualified, you almost certainly are not. And if you are not qualified, why are you talking about what you know nothing of? It's hard for me to talk to you about humility because it's something I know so little about myself. I know a great deal about the opposite of humility, and that is pride. I'm very qualified to speak on that topic. But tonight, following John's lead, we will speak in praise of humility. And we should start by noting how strange that statement is in praise of humility. It's remarkable that in the ancient world, nobody valued humility. Plato, Aristotle, the Greeks, Cicero, nobody prized it. Unlike our modern Western culture, theirs was a shame and honor culture, where what mattered most was your family's family's reputation and place. So to prize humility, that was unthinkable. Something happened to change all that. It should be said that humility is making a bit of a comeback today. Jim Collins, if you're a business major, you know that name. He wrote the book, Good to Great, where he and his Stanford Business School colleagues examined why certain companies make the jump from being a merely good company to becoming a great company. What do great companies have in common? And Collins' findings surprised a lot of people because he discovered the CEO makes a huge difference. Now that's no surprise. But what he discovered was that in the most successful companies, great companies are led not by high-profile leaders with larger-than-life personalities, but rather in Collins' words, by self-effacing, quiet, reserved, even shy leaders. Who possess a paradoxical blend of personal humility and professional will. Close quote. So there's been a spate of leadership books that have come out that have said the most influential people and inspiring people are often marked by humility. But you see the irony, don't you? Personal humility is now being promoted by an appeal to self interest. You know, be humble, it works. And perhaps this explains why it's not humility as the old writers talk about it that gets talked about so much today as humility's cousin, vulnerability. See, Brene Brown. Vulnerability is to be commended. But do you see what's happened? There's been a subtle but very important shift in how we understand humility to take out any trace of lowering oneself or abasing oneself. Even the oft-quoted definition of humility from C.S. Lewis, who said humility is not thinking less of oneself, humility is thinking of oneself less. You might have heard that definition. What's fascinating to me, you're you're going to be hearing a lot tonight about a guy named Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux lived a 1,000 years ago. He's one of the great names in church history because he's someone that everyone likes, Protestants, Catholics. He was a great writer. He was the most formative influence on Martin Luther and John Calvin. Bernard, Bernard thought he could interpret the whole Bible through the Song of Songs. Okay, this was a cool guy, Bernard of Clairvaux. And he agreed, he wrote a little treatise on humility. He agreed that self-forgetfulness is the epitome of humility. But he went on to add, so few can ever achieve this, let alone sustain it, that in actual practice, this definition of humility is altogether too rare to really be helpful as a guidepost for daily living. He's saying, you can say not think of yourself, but let's be real. That's, that's never going to work, Bernard is saying. And Bernard goes on to add, you'll never get started on the road to humility unless you start by admitting you're very far from it. And C.S. Lewis said that too. He said, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I think I can tell you the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. Now this may seem like a negative note on which to begin a sermon on humility, but it makes good healthy sense. That the very first step in pursuing humility, if you want glory, as God defines it, this is the way, and the very first step in pursuing humility begins with owning that you are not humble, but you want to be. But here's the question, why would you want to be? Even if humility is something we know we should value, why would you want to prize humility? And I'm going to prove to you tonight because it is the pathway to the glory you were made for. You will never get what your heart is really after until your heart is really after humility. So let me give you a definition of humility, decidedly old-fashioned, from that same Bernard of Clairvaux, 11th century writer. Here's Bernard's definition. He said, Humility is the virtue by which a man recognizes his own unworthiness because he really knows himself. A humble person knows himself in reference to God, without which Bernard says, a person can never know himself. And to know oneself in reference to God must entail recognizing our own unworthiness. Now, such a way of putting it is decidedly out of fashion today, especially in our self-obsessed culture, especially, I should add, when depression and suicide rates are at an all-time record incidence. Such a way of putting it not only sounds Uh, unhealthy, but even perhaps harmful. We'll get to that in a few moments and see if by the end I haven't convinced you that on the contrary, nothing is more harmful to your life than your pride. Nothing harms you more than your pride and nothing is a better friend to you than humility. For now, I'm simply pointing out we have lost a sense of understanding, let alone valuing humility. There are simply no voices in our lives urging us toward it. I don't know too many parents who, if you ask them what they wanted for their kids, would instinctively say, you know what I want? I want my child to be humble, above all humble. I don't know too many college students or young professionals or pastors who have that at the top of their personal development plan. Above all, humility. I don't know too many employers who, if you ask them what they admire most and would-be applicants, would say, you know, I really liked her. She was meek. You see what's happened. We've redefined humility to take out any hint of lowering or abasing oneself to the point we simply don't have voices in our lives urging us toward humility, except are a few voices. Take the gospel writer, John. Something I've never noticed is how much focus John puts on John the Baptist. Why does he do this? Well, he's depicting John the Baptist as the model disciple of Jesus. Right from the start, John wants to give us a picture of the life he'll be urging us toward. And if there is one character trait that John wishes to emphasize in John the Baptist, among all others, it's his humility. And you can see this where John the Baptist is introduced back in chapter 1, verse 27. John says, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. It was customary in those days for disciples to perform tasks for their masters. But the one thing a servant would never do is touch his master's feet. That was beneath any servant. And yet, notice, John doesn't say, compared to Jesus, I can only untie his shoes. He says, I am not even worthy to touch the straps of his sandal. Humility could scarcely take a lower place than John takes here. So John is drawing our attention above all to John's humility. 400 years later, when St. Augustine was asked, what is the cardinal virtue of the Christian life? Augustine said, there are three cardinal virtues of the Christian life. Three things above all that you need to know about the Christian life. Humility, humility, humility. In this course, they're simply following their master. It is significant that Christ possessed all the virtues. Christ had every virtue. But although he had them all, he especially commended all only one, humility, when he said, learn from me, for I am humble. I mean, he could have picked any other virtue, but the one he picked, learn from me, this is Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, learn from me, for I am humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me, for I am humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, you will never rest. You will, don't we, we all want to rest? Jesus is saying, you will never rest until you learn from me how to be humble. And you never hear that today. That humility is your greatest friend. So in our remaining moments tonight, let me give you, following John the Evangelist, for you note-takers out there, some of the defining marks of humility. I'll give you three following our text Three marks of humility. Then I'll try and prove to you why you might want to pursue humility as your best friend. And then I'll conclude by giving you some steps toward it. That it is possible for you to pursue humility. How do you do that? But first in our passage, John gives three marks of a humble person. First, contentment with what you have been given. And just as importantly, with what you have not been given. Look at verse 26. Some of John the Baptist's disciples are complaining that people are leaving John instead going over to a new master, Jesus. John replies, verse 27, "A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven." I can't think of a healthier perspective than John's here. Everything I have, I've have been given by God. So there is absolutely no room for me to envy or to boast. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast? Stated another way, you were content with the portion the Lord has assigned to you. Content. As opposed to the great lie. And and here's the great lie of our pride. The great lie goes like this. If only then. If only then, if only I had that, whatever that is, then I would be happy, then I would be content. That is the great lie. It was the first deception in the Garden of Eden, and it remains the most enduring deception. The greatest sermon I ever heard on humility was one sentence long. I heard it five years ago at a men's breakfast for my friend Pete Peterson, who just ran for a public statewide office in California. He was talking about how it was so easy for him to envy his peers who seemed to be surpassing him in every other area of life. And I said, yeah, how do you deal with that? He says, I have a little phrase I use. I said, what is it? He said, I tell myself, that's not your story. That's not your story. That's not your story. Pete was talking about how he defeated pangs of envy, that he had learned to tell himself, that is not your story. See, all you have is your story. That's the only one you can have. And the best antidote to anxiety is a firm conviction of the gracious sovereignty of God over your life. Then, instead of envy for what you lack, you'll have gratitude for what you've been given. Because John 3, verse 27, you cannot receive even one thing unless it is given you from heaven. That means you're not... That means when you meet impressive people, you are not threatened. (laughs) You are not threatened or impressed. Instead, what impresses you and perhaps even unsettles you are people who are humble. It's unsettling because their way of life is such an indictment of yours. What a friend humility. It will keep you from becoming bitter and disappointed about what you haven't been given. That's not your story and it will make you grateful for what you have been given because you know you have not deserved it. Whatever you have been given, gratitude, contentment, that is a mark of humility. Here's the second one. Verses 28 and 29, John the Baptist says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears them rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. There's the second mark of humility. You know your place, and it is always second place. John compares himself to the friend of the bridegroom. That's a privileged place, isn't it? Friend of the bridegroom. He said, there is a star to this party, and I am not the star. See, pride makes us want to be the center of of attention, the center of the narrative. John says, it's not my party. Jesus is the guest of honor, but I'm invited. He says, the friend rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. My joy is to do your will. What a privileged place John has here. He called friend of Jesus. But you know, you have that place too. Jesus says that about you. He says, I no longer call you servants. and John 15, I call you my friends. What a privileged place you have, friend of Jesus. And yet at the same time, you know your place at his service. So that what matters most to us is his voice and his will. Our friend, Jesus, who is also our master. So that we can always say, master, I am here to do your bidding. Master, I am here to do your bidding. What a friend humility. It will allay so much anxiety in your life. Master, I'm here to do your bidding. Your master, who is also your friend. Anytime you are nervous, anytime you are anxious, anytime you are afraid, afraid of the future, afraid of how others, what they'll think about you or what will happen to you, you can always say, Master, I'm here to do your bidding. I say that to myself every time before I step out to preach. In Los Angeles or here anywhere, i say, Master, I'm here to do your bidding, however you choose to use me. My work, my efforts, I yield to you to do with them as you will. And John the Baptist says, If you take this place, you will rejoice greatly. We hear today that vulnerability is the pathway to joy because you no longer need to protect yourself or impress others. John the Baptist doesn't disagree, but he goes further. To say the fullness of joy is no longer needing to protect yourself or impress others. The fullness of joy is that you no longer care because you know your place. You stand beside Jesus, your friend who is your master. That is a mark of humility. Master, I'm here to do your bidding. And John says if you put yourself in that place, your joy will overflow. That's why verse 29 concludes, Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. That's what makes John's joy complete, to do Jesus' will. You're no longer concerned about what others are are making of you. What concerns you is what others make of him, Jesus. So, what What a friend, humility. Here's a third mark of humility, and it's the distinctive mark of Christian humility. And when I say distinctive mark of Christian humility, it's certainly not true that only Christians can be humble. Far from it. But here's the distinctive contribution of Christian humility, what John says of Jesus in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must become more important, I must become less important. He must grow greater and greater, I less and less. This is one of those lines we easily say, but instinctively we turn away from. I mean, there could hardly be a verse of the Bible more at odds with our cultural narrative than John 3.30. So I'd like to submit we change this around in our practical understanding from he must increase, but I must increase. We like to change that around to if we increase, Jesus will increase. You know what I'm talking about? And in our business or our careers, our schools, it looks like, Lord, give me success and then I'll give you the credit. Lord, give me prosperity, and then I'll be a generous person. Lord, make me prosperous, and I will give a lot of money to your causes. If I increase, Jesus, I will make sure that you increase. In ministry, it looks like the courting of celebrities. You know, if only we can get some really important people to come to this church. We think we can easily hold together worldly success and spiritual maturity, but John the Baptist knows better. He knows the only wise course, we must become less and less so that he might become greater and greater. That's one of the greatest tests of humility. You are happy to decrease. In fact, you don't mind being overlooked. C.S. Lewis says in his essay on pride, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, How much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or patronize me or show off in front of me? What a friend, humility. I'm talking to you tonight about what can be the best friend for the rest of your life, humility. The failure you come to fear most is loving yourself more than you love God. God because now you finally know your greatest enemy is your pride. So to protect yourself from that essential vice and that unmost evil of pride, Bernard, that same Bernard of Clairvaux, he says, here are the telltale signs of pride. He actually gives 12, I'm just going to reduce it for time's sake, to three. Three marks of pride. He says, number one, curiosity about what is not one's proper concern. And by curiosity, Bernard means comparison, Comparing your life to one another's, trying to judge, trying to rank. Bernard says, impatient in his humiliation, by which he means when we aren't feeling good about ourselves, the proud man flies to false consolations and uses his curiosity per- to perceive how he excels others. And so he deceives himself that he can avoid sadness. He's saying that's one mark of pride is when we're feeling bad about ourselves, we compare ourselves. He said, well, at least I'm not her, or I'm a little bit better than him. Another mark of is, he says, the desire for distinction. When a person has been boasting that he is superior to others, it is galling to him not to outdo them in performance. He is most interested in seeming to be better than others, so that he too can say, I am not as other men. And third, and Bernard says this is the epitome of pride, quote, feeling free to follow one's own voice. Bernard continues, he begins to travel the road which seems good to him. It's noteworthy Bernard lists this as the epitome of pride because nothing is more mainstream to us today than hearing this follow your own inner voice. Nothing comes more naturally. And yet Bernard says this is the pinnacle of human pride. And he says this habit will actually make you captive to the tyranny of your own emotions, the tyranny of your own voice, until we forget the fear of God and come to love our own excellence, he says. He concludes nothing robs you of your peace more than your pride. In terms of the theme of this week, Bernard is saying you will never find the glory you are seeking by seeking your own glory. John the Baptist knows this. John the Gospel writer knows this. And so to protect themselves from the prison of our pride, John urges us to place John 3.30 as a banner over our lives. He must increase. I must decrease. That is the distinctive mark of Christian humility. Now, You say, well, why would I even want to be humble? You said it's it's my best friend, but why would I want to be humble? How can we come to see humility as our best friend? Well, I started this sermon by saying that humility was never valued in the ancient world. What changed all of that? Well, you know, a certain man came along. Though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But rather, Philippians 2 says, Jesus humbled himself taking the form of a servant. See, he knew his place. Father, I'm here to do your bidding. He knew his story. He made himself obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility was not just what Jesus preached. Humility was not just the one virtue Jesus singled out above all others. Humility was not just what Jesus modeled when he washed his disciples' feet. Humility is who Jesus is. It's what marked his life above all other things, humility. So we said last night that the goal of life is to have the image of God restored in you. And you say, what does that look like? For, for, for my life to flourish, for my life to blossom. And now you know above all it looks like for you to become a humble person. That that is what it means to be fully human. Andrew Murray put it well. He said, Christ is the humility of God embodied in human nature. The eternal love humbling itself, clothing itself in the garb of meekness to win and serve and save us. The Gospel of John will go on to emphasize that the crucifixion of Jesus was not evidence of his humiliation, but proof that greatness expresses itself in humility. This is Jesus' glory, his cross, his humility. See, I can preach a sermon to you or to myself in praise of humility, but God knows that we won't seek it, much less value it, until we grasp that Jesus' valuing of humility, this is not life denying to you, this is life giving to you. Jesus is the one who died for you to show you how to live wisely and well. Jesus calls you to humility because he calls you to himself. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am humble, and you will find rest for your souls. This is why, why Dale Bruner, I think Dale Bruner is the greatest living Bible scholar. Dale Bruner calls John 3, verse 30, quote, the most concise statement in the Bible of a healthy Christian psychology. The most concise, if you, want to be, if you want to have a healthy psychology, Bruner says this is the most concise statement in the Bible of what a healthy Christian psychology is, John 3, 3.30. And one reason we have eschewed talk of humility today is because I, I think we hear it as old-fashioned or glum is leading us away from joy, is leading us away from peace, is leading us away from a healthy self-understanding. We don't really see humility as the way to life. But when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is saying that the way to life is the way to humility. That is the truth. He says, learn from me, for I am humble. Follow me, Jesus says, and you will have the light of life. Follow me, and I will show you how to live well. Instead of following the great lie, if only then. If only we could see that it is our pride that is leading us away from life. It is our pride that is leading us away from light. If only we could see our pride as our greatest enemy and humility our best friend. Because it leads us toward our best friend who intends for us life. You know, I told you last night that my wife was tough. She's also one of the wisest people in the world I've ever met, except for one glaring exception, marrying me. But she said to me once, she's my, she's my best counselor, she said to me once, she said, Rankin, there are not too many problems you face that humility won't solve. Boy, if you take one line away from this week, you can take that away with you, because that will serve you well your whole life. There are not too many problems you face that humility won't solve. See, if you're humble before God, you know your place. Undeserving and yet loved by him at the same time. And now do you see the wisdom and beauty of humility? You're no longer afraid. You no longer fear losing face. You can accept criticism. You're not threatened by it because God defines you, your identity and your worth. You can boast in other successes and you can boast in your own weakness because you no longer need the approval and recognition of others. You can accept others indiscriminately because you no longer need to measure your status by the company you keep. You don't have to fear. Best of all, you don't have to fear anymore because you finally know the truth about yourself. The liberating truth, and far from being unhealthy and even harmful, nothing is more healthy for your soul than humility. If you ask me, behind the increased incidence of depression and suicide in our culture is not an old fashioned humility, but a newfangled self esteem that admits only of positives, so there is no room, there's not even a vocabulary to admit, let alone redeem our deeper wounds. But Jesus says, Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am humble and you will find rest for your souls. Well, let me conclude then with a few practical steps made possible by God's Spirit in your life, but able to be practiced by you. I'll give you four. First, stitch reminders into your life. Stitch reminders into your life. That's what Proverbs says. It says, Get wisdom. And keep it ever before you. Stitch reminders into your life. I've given you a lot of phrases today because these are phrases I use. I've stitched them into my life. Master, I'm here to do your bidding. That's not your story. There are few problems you face that humility won't solve. He must become greater. I must become less. You place these as banners over your life, on your mirror, uh, in, in in your room, in your house. These are anchoring truths that your heart can hold on to when you get anxious or afraid. When you feel envy, that's not your story. When you, when you, when you feel performance anxiety, master, I'm here to do your bidding. When you're afraid, there are a few problems in your life that humility won't solve. So stitch reminders into your life. Secondly, serve others without thought or need of recognition. That's what Jesus was modeling in John 13 when he said, in verse 15, I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done. He's saying, find a place to serve inconspicuously, and I might add, in your local church. Find a place to serve inconspicuously in your local church. Third, invite criticism. Invite criticism. Even welcome criticism as an opportunity to learn. See, David Brooks said in the New York Times, we all have an inflated sense of our capacities. And nothing blinds you more than success in one field to make you think you are competent in others. That's why we have uh, celebrities speaking about uh, matters of public concern, or or Mark Zuckerberg, uh, incredible, brilliant entrepreneur, but nothing blinds you more than success in one field to make you think you were competent in others. Jim Collins says, good leaders are not threatened when their ideas are challenged. So become a, become a friend, and among your friends, cultivate a culture where feedback is welcomed, where you always have a teachable posture. You always want to hear where you can improve. You always want to hear where you can Repent. And fourthly and finally, seek the low place. Seek the low place. Build upon the low rock. That's from Jesus. He said that in a parable in Luke 15 on the wisdom of humility. Jesus told a story about a man who was invited to a wedding feast. And maybe you know this story. The man chose to sit at the table of honor until someone more important than him arrived. Then the host was compelled to say to the man in front of the whole gathering, Could you please move tables? Someone more important than you has arrived. The man would be so ashamed to be so publicly demoted. So Jesus says, Instead, this is Luke 14, 10, When you are invited, take the lowest place. Take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up. Jesus is saying to all of us who likewise seek places of distinction and notoriety. Seek the low place. The theme of the parable is, it is better to be humble than to be humiliated. Seek the low place. That doesn't mean you stop striving or working hard. It means you finally know your place and you're content with it. What matters is not your reputation, but you're close to him who says to you, take my yoke and learn from me, for I am humble and you will find rest for your souls. Friends, if you want rest for your souls, learn to make humility your best friend. That is the path to glory. Well, let me pray for us. Father, I pray that this uh, very countercultural call that we, we don't hear from anyone, Lord, but we hear it from you. Learn from me, for I am humble. Lord, I pray that we would, we would learn from you. humility, humility. Humility. That we might walk out of this room and see that pursuing humility, seeking the low place, a proper sense of our own unworthiness before you, that we might see humility as our best friend, is the path to glory, is the path to a life that will flourish and blossom. Lord, may your voice be louder than every other voice. We pray in your name.